Jesus' disciples, God bless them, are perpetually confused. Most of the time they have no idea what's going on, which makes them wonderfully relatable, human. That's especially true in this text when Jesus is transfigured into an angelic being of pure lights who summons long-dead prophets back from the grave to discuss matters beyond human understanding. One would hope, given these circumstances, that the disciples would have enough humility to acknowledge their own ignorance, the limits of their own understanding, and just stand by quietly in awe of what's happening in front of them. But Peter interrupts these cosmic proceedings, feeling compelled to do something, as if there's anything he can do in that moment that would be remotely useful. As I study the text this week, it seems to me that it's really about humility and hubris. Like Peter, we want to believe that we've got a handle on things, that there is no mystery, no problem that we cannot solve. But as Shakespeare wisely says, there is more in heaven and earth than is dreamt of in your philosophy. A reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 2 through 10. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling bright, such as no one on earth could brighten them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us set up three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead could mean. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. Please pray with me. Everlasting God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon all of our hearts serve to glorify you. And may they be in keeping the teachings of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You'd be surprised just how much food goes missing every year. I'm not talking about the stuff that gets rotten or thrown away or the odd crate of produce that falls off the back of a truck somewhere in Nebraska. No, I'm talking about the food that we order from DoorDash for dinner. It's no exaggeration to say that a fair percentage of it never arrives. I don't know if it's the restaurant's fault or if the driver is skimming off the top, but something is amiss. Having delivered for DoorDash myself while I was on sabbatical, I'll confess 
but I was tempted. I mean, when you've got a hot meal sitting in your passenger seat, the smell wafting up to your nose like one of those old cartoons, you start to feel like Yogi the Bear sniffing out a picnic basket. You know? It's easy to convince yourself that no one's going to miss the odd chicken nugget or french fry. Still, my wife, Angela, and I were especially perplexed last week when we ordered a couple of chicken sandwiches from Wendy's. What we received instead were two completely empty buns. <laughs> the meat had inexplicably vanished. The chicken crossed the road, but it never reached the other side. It's unnerving finding something like that on your doorstep. It's like getting one of those cryptic ransom notes with the letters cut out of magazines and glued together. It's, it's like a message. It feels like a thinly veiled threat. Intentional, premeditated, personal. Angela and I stood over the empty buns, puzzled, staring as if we might find some clue to explain the disappearance. This isn't their first time, she said sounding like an FBI profiler on TV. <laughs> Actually, this happened to me two weeks ago, she confessed. The plot thickens. It's all very mysterious. I need to know what happened. How? How does someone make this mistake three times in two weeks, if indeed it was a mistake at all? What grudge? Do they hold against us? How many more sandwiches have to disappear before justice is served? Sadly, I suppose that this particular mystery will never be solved. The case, much like my DoorDash delivery, has already gone cold. Folks love a good mystery, so long as it can be solved. For my part, I've been enjoying the first season of True Detective on HBO as of late. The show follows two detectives, played by Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson, trying to solve a young woman's murder in rural Louisiana. Nothing especially original there. The real appeal is in the chemistry between the actors and the existentialist philosophy. McConaughey's character, Officer Rust Cole, is especially intriguing as a misanthropic, nihilistic atheist that likes to quote Nietzsche. I suppose being a homicide detective can do that to you. I think human consciousness is a tragic misstep in evolution, he tells Harrelson as they're driving away from the crime scene. We became too self-aware. We are creatures that should not exist by natural law. We are things that labor under the illusion of having a self an accretion of sensory experience and feeling, programmed with total assurance that we are each somebody, when in fact, everybody is nobody. Maybe the honorable thing for our species to do is to deny our programming, stop reproducing, walk hand in hand into extinction. One last midnight, brothers and sisters opting out of a raw deal. Why even get out of bed in the morning? asks his irritated partner. What does that even mean? It means I'm bad at parties, McConaughey deflects, 
staring blankly out the window. Let me tell you, Harrison replies, you ain't great outside of parties either. At one point, McConaughey is talking about these visions that he has after effects from years on the sauce as an undercover narcotics detective. Strange colors in the sky, a murder of crows arranging themselves into symbols in the air, that sort of thing. Yeah, most of the time I was convinced that I'd lost it, he says. But there were other times I thought I was mainlining the secret truth of the universe. Mainlining the secret truth of the universe. I'd say that's a pretty apt description of what Peter, James, and John experience on the mountaintop. Not to suggest that they're on drugs. On the contrary, there's no rational explanation for what they see. Jesus lit up like a thousand-watt light bulb, talking to two guys who've been dead for a thousand years about God knows what. The secret truth of the universe, probably. This is all a bit much for these lowly disciples, as it would be for us. On the whole, most folks aren't all that comfortable with psychedelic visions and unsolved mysteries. We don't like ambiguity. We need explanations, certainty, order. We like to know what's what. We have questions and we want answers. How did this happen? Why did this happen? And what's going to happen next? We usually turn to science for answers, which is understandable. Science has consistently offered reliable explanations for how the universe works. Thanks to dedicated research and the scientific method, we've unraveled the secrets of biology, chemistry, astrophysics, and countless other fields of inquiry. Forensic science solves mysteries and crimes. We know why the sky is blue and why it rains. We understand how the human body works and how to heal most diseases. We ventured into outer space and put a man on the moon. Science has helped us to understand our world. But when Jesus' disciples follow him to the mountaintop, they're privileged with a glimpse of the world behind the world. The secret truth of the universe, an unfolding of dimensions that science can hardly begin to account for or explain. Human beings have long suspected that this material Reality is a facsimile of a higher plane of existence, a veil that covers what is really real, a dream that we'll one day wake up from. Religion, fundamentally, is an attempt to pierce that veil, if we can, to glimpse beyond it. And every religious tradition struggles to find its own path up that mountain. In his allegory of the cave, Plato explains that the universe we call real is like a shadow cast on a cave wall, a silhouette of higher forms. In the early days of Christianity, the Gnostics would teach that this material plane is the creation of a lesser demigod. Today, a lot of folks believe that we live in a computer simulation. It's all the same idea, basically, that there is more to reality than meets the eye that we're stuck in a lower plane of existence. And here on the mountaintop, Peter, 
James and John reach the edge of it, the very limits of human understanding and ingenuity, the mystery that no detective or scientist can solve, where the sidewalk ends. Peter's reaction to this numinous spectacle is deeply human. He tries to control the situation, to bring some order to the chaos. Peter treats this cosmic unveiling like a mystery to be solved, or worse, a problem to be solved. He suggests putting up these tents for Jesus, Moses, and Elijah as if they're all going to go on some camping trip or, or maybe live in a gated community up on the mountaintop or some kind of hippie commune. Peter tries to capture this wild mystery, put it in a box with four walls where it can be contained understood. The text tells us that Peter is terrified, which is understandable. And faced with the unknown, we often retreat towards what we know. Reason, order, science, technology. That's how we solve problems in this world, for better or worse, right? We build things. And that's Peter's first instinct, to build something. It's a common thing in scripture when Jacob has a vision of this ladder to heaven he builds an altar when David has a vision of God he tries to build God a house Solomon in much the same way builds an entire temple we've built a lot of things too from the wheel to the atomic bomb science solves our mysteries and technology solves our problems when you need to move a cart full of grain down a hill, for instance, wheels are incredibly useful. But what if we've built too much? What if all of the combustion engines and disposable smartphones and plastic ketchup bottles and towering skyscrapers and oil rigs and nuclear missiles and as seen on TV infomercial baubles have created bigger problems than they were intended to solve? Back in 2020, a study demonstrated that human-made materials had, for the first time, outweighed all natural biomass. It's poisoning the planet. Say nothing of the carbon and waste heat that comes from burning fossil fuels to mine, build, transport, and power all of that stuff. Wheels will only take you so far. There's a point where our ingenuity reaches its limits and the wheels come off. What if some of these problems that the world faces, climate change, ecological overshoot, even our intractable wars, aren't problems with conventional solutions, but rather predicaments with outcomes that we have to acknowledge and adapt to? In matters of both science and religion, we always have to choose between humility, acknowledging that there are limits to what we can understand or accomplish, and hubris, believing that nothing is beyond our reach. I read a disturbing short story some time ago. It was called, When Science Found God. It follows an aspiring young physicist who joins a team of 50 or so renowned scientists from all over the world in a lab deep beneath Stockholm. 
Their project initially is to study quarks, protons, subatomic particles, quantum entanglement, and string theory. Theoretical physics, basically. And over a period of years, they gain a deeper understanding of all this stuff and even learn how to manipulate the subatomic realm. And eventually, they're able to build a machine for this purpose. I think it was then that we first realized the scope of what it was we had created, the author writes. The applications for the machine seemed endless. It could write books, clone living organisms, and alter the very elements beneath our feet. It was the philosopher's stone, the holy grail, and the all-seeing eye in one convenient little package, the world's very first quantum computer and more. This quantum computer is able to cure diseases, solve previously unsolvable equations, even regrow dead tissue. It's also capable of simulating virtual worlds that are indistinguishable from reality, which leads the head of the project, one Dr. Lundgren, to wonder if we are not in such a simulation ourselves. Again, a popular theory these days among some. And that's when the good doctor instructs his team to pursue a new directive to break through the boundaries of our suspected simulation and peer beyond our own reality to glimpse whatever may lie on the other side, the author explains. Nothing else seemed to matter by that point. While the machine isn't power enough, powerful enough to do that exactly, they figure that if they can break even one law of physics, whatever it might be, that whatever exists beyond this reality will take notice and communicate with us. And remarkably, remember this is a work of fiction, they succeed. Specifically, they manage to reverse time in a contained field, forcing a plant to return to its original state as a seed. As soon as they succeed in this experiment, all at once the lab goes haywire. The lights and screens begin to flicker. Cables break loose and flail widely around, smashing consoles and hissing steam. The scientists race to pull the plug on the machine, killing the power. And everything shuts down except for one display that remains lit. Two words flashing ominously on the screen. I never thought two simple words could have such lasting effects on my psyche, the narrator writes. Those two words that have made me question everything I thought I ever knew. Turn back said. And with that, the machine finally goes dark. Friends, there are simply some things that we cannot understand, no matter how brilliant our species might be. Science gets us some of the way there, and the religious imagination, I would argue, gets us a little further. But that's where we hit a wall. We're like flat stick figures trying to see the third dimension. And that's to say nothing of the 11 or so theorized by quantum physics. In the words of the physicist Max Planck, science cannot solve the ultimate mystery of nature. And that is because in the last analysis, we ourselves are a part of the mystery that we are trying to solve. And that's where faith comes in. A conviction in things not seen. Not because we're foolish or crazy or making things up, but because we're humble enough to know 
limits of our sight. I don't know what dimensions exist beyond the ones we can perceive. No more than I can explain what happened to my chicken sandwiches. I still suspect foul play. But who knows? <laughs> Maybe some puzzles aren't meant to be solved. As Nietzsche said in one of his better moods, life is not a problem to be solved, but a mystery to be lived. Amen. <laughs>